Hi, I'm Karuna. I'm the founder and executive director of Mind Oasis. And today on Meditation Happy Hour, Tea Talk and Truth with Karuna is my teacher, my guru, my most favorite person on and off this earth. <laughs> Hector Marcel, how are you, lovely? Hi, it's nice to see you. I'm well. Thank you. A thousand things going on in my mind and really leaning on the habit of practice as all the things happen around the holidays and Christmas and changes. But I'm good, actually, inside. Should we take a breath together? Let's do it. Okay. Eyes open or closed. Just a nice I... inhale through the nose. A little pause and an exhale. Two more. One more. Awesome. That felt really good. Thank you. <laughs> Hector, where in the world are you? I'm in a place called Bushwick in Brooklyn, New York. So it's at the western side of the Long Island, for those of you that don't know New York, just before Manhattan. You're an important person beyond being the source of all my personal good. <laughs> um, tell us a little bit about what you're up to in this world. Yeah, okay. So um, currently I'm the president of Three Jewels, which is this nonprofit in the heart of New York City. It's been around 25 years. Um, and we do all this awesome stuff you do as well. So we teach meditation, yoga, we have classes on a regular. We, we serve about 45,000 visits a year, yeah, both online and in person, people that uh, connect with the, the space inside to relate to the space outside. That's what I, I'm currently doing most of. But I also, I'm a veteran of organizational change management. So meaning I help uh, mostly large organizations, although I've done other consulting, on managing the effects of change or the potential in change. So let's say a big brand needs to rebrand or reorganize, fire, hire, or change products. Or um, Then they call me in and we strategize and do um, plan for how to maneuver the change so it helps everyone, the employees, the customers, the bottom line, and realigns people to their vision rather than disintegrates things, which change can, can do that if you're not managing. I've done that for about 20 years now, 17, 20 years. And so I, that's the two big spectrums of my life, as well as all the other human things we all do. Yeah. Three Jewels is at threejewels.org, spelling out the letter three. 3jewels.org. Please check them out. Please support 3jewels. It is um, a treasure in the heart of New York City, but it's a treasure for this world as well. Um, I was, as I was preparing for this session, it was funny. I was thinking about, you know, it's tea, talk, and truth, and we'll definitely get to talk and truth. But I was thinking about you. You're a New Yorker, and I believe in the power of coffee. So I believe you should call this one coffee talk and truth with Karuna. Yeah, that's what I'd like to call it. You know, even at Three Jewels, we used to have like we have a nice cafe at the front where people come in and have an experience and sit down and 
and begin to think and talk about the stuff that happened with them in meditation yoga or a class. So it's a nice kind of debate community. And for years we had this coffee machine, nice espressos and the rest, because it's New York, right? And also because I think coffee is like the best thing, but don't tell the angels, you know? <laughs> and so this year, uh, post COVID, we decided to do some changes and see if it looked different and we removed the coffee machine. So now we're at tea house. <laughs> I know, I know, I know, I know. So, <laughs> oh, I'm almost uh, like knocking I, over with a feather. <laughs> so tea's right. You know, we've got this awesome relationship with Rishi Teas and we got, you know, samples and experiences that people can have at Three Jewels, but it's not the same as an espresso machine. <laughs> I love it. And that actually is a beautiful little segue because um, you have an accent and I have to say it's not a New York accent. So perhaps you can tell us a little <laughs> bit about um, where you hail from. Um, and, and the thought was that I believe you are a big fan of matcha tea and dulce de leche. <laughs> so there's a couple of hints for, for folks, but here we go. Yeah, mate, mate. So oh, mate. mate, not the matcha tea. Sorry, yeah, 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 mate, yerba mate. So I was born in Argentina. My parents are Argentinian children of migrants from Germany and Gypsy, Arabic and Spanish and Italian. And they all moved to Argentina. My parents were born there and I grew up, I was born there up until the age of 10. And then at the age of 10, my parents told us that we're going to get on an airplane. And I'm like, that's so cool. I've never not even been in a car, you know, in Argentina. We were, <laughs> we're pretty poor. I'm like airplane. And of course, they were just ideas. Um, and I, I remember distinctly going to the Australian consulate where it is that we moved to. And the, the person in the consulate gave us these picture books as kids of koalas and kangaroos and all the Aussie things. Vegemite. I didn't understand what the hell it meant. But then we moved to um, to Australia, me at the age of 10, my siblings, my parents. And I don't know, pre-internet, pre-phone, you know, it didn't occur that the meaning of they speak another language. Like you think the world is what you speak and how you think. And, and it wasn't until we landed that it's like, there's no way we can communicate with people. My parents went through like depression because they just couldn't do their jobs anymore. And But it wasn't anything we planned. I mean, at least not me, you know, um, and and the, the greatest thing that happened is my dad specifically just encouraged us become Australian. Like uh, your Argentinian background is going to be there all the time. You can't get rid of that. But why don't you try becoming Australian? You know, that might serve you. And oh, my goodness, with that bit of advice, it really helped. I, I feel Australian more than I feel Argentinian, you know, culturally and the way I look at the world is more. Australian than, than Argentinian, but I still feel that Spanishness, the passion and the nuance and the beauty in the language. And uh, so I have the benefit of both. And so even with this accent, even in Australia, they they don't quite think I'm Australian, even though I'm Australian, I feel Australian. They sometimes think I'm South African, yeah. South African. Yeah. And here, of course, they think I'm Australian. When I go to Argentina, I'm not Argentinian. Like, I like not belonging anywhere. <laughs> That's and <the> everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> because it implies that, right? It implies that I could fit anywhere. Mm. So I've alluded to this because you are my teacher. 
Um, and, but for our listeners, not everyone will understand exactly what that means. And so I was thinking about um, if you could share your journey to your teacher and who your teachers mm -hmm. are, um, and then we'll roll down a pathway about a little bit about meditation, a little bit about lineage and about the Dharma, I thought. Yeah, such an interesting question because uh, the role and relationship between teacher and student and even the identification as teacher is a whole thing in Tibetan Buddhist philosophy. So when you go study that, the leaning, the, the more in depth you study, the more you realize um, the power and potential in having met a teacher. And for me specifically, being both stubborn and I'm not from any part of Argentina. I'm from Buenos Aires and people from Buenos Aires think they own the world and they know everything and nobody can tell them what to do. And I definitely have all those stories in me. So for me, meeting a teacher was not just recognizing the preciousness of getting someone's knowledge transferred to you through example. Yeah. Not just instruction, but by watching and being with them and becoming that thing that you see as a mentor, a guide and everything. But the, the more important thing for me, at least meeting a teacher is becoming aware of how closed off we are to admiring other folk, to submitting and to getting humbled. That was my path to the teacher, really getting humbled by the results of their instruction. Mm. That, that I think that was the main thing for me. So for me, um, didn't didn't want a teacher, not interested in a teacher. I thought all religious people are kooks. They're weird. Like, honestly, I, I thought that. I was walking around the world backpacking for three years, like Australians do after college or school, with a backpack full of Anne Rand books because <laughs> her philosophy was right for me in my 20s. You know, she's this objective thing that that doesn't work it's bad these people that like and in her philosophy religious folk people that are spiritual in any sense are viewed as the manipulators of the world they manipulate the brutes or the people in power to believe in the thing so they can take other people's stuff this is her philosophy i was walking around trying to to think that because I had seen so much harm happen, not just to me, but to people around me in religious circles, you know. Um, and, and, you know, I still hold some of that in my mind, the difference between an actual spiritual practice that's within and a dogmatic ritual with bells and whistles and or the language around it, but the behavior doesn't match it. So I'm very cognizant of that. Mm -hmm. So having having that as a background, I moved to New York, backpacking, etc. And I bump into this monk, this Tibetan Buddhist monk. And when I say Tibetan Buddhist monk, you probably all have a mental image of what that looks like. I did. And that dude didn't match my image. <laughs> That image of Tibetan monk didn't match the reality of having met what later on I realized was a master like no other. But upon meeting, it was instant rejection. It's like, you're Westerner, you can't be a Tibetan monk. <laughs> you know, I'm like, 
Tibetan. And he's the first American to graduate from a Tibetan Buddhist monastic university, like Saramane Monastery, you know. Uh, same lineage as the Dalai Lama, uh, Lama Zopa, like all these great Tibetan practitioners. This dude, a now holy teacher of mine, was the first Western American to, to graduate there. And I still, even though he has said all these weird Tibetan words and understood Sanskrit and was a scholar of Russian and all languages and could relate these Eastern concepts into modern Western language, I still had this image doesn't match my expectation. So to me, the biggest teaching after resolving that conflict with him, his name is Geshe Michael Roach, um, was understanding that the instruction he gave me was the thing that, oh my God, um, destroyed the things that were hurting me inside. The, the thing that I didn't want to look at. And it began for me with the humility to accept that there is a person, even though I didn't see him in that way at the beginning, whose kindness and instruction completely liberated me from the grasps of a misunderstanding I had inside. Initially, just intellectually, but the effects and the results were unshakable after they happened. He taught me that through meditation and philosophy, and it took years, and he had the patience to put up with my bullshit and just keep instructing me and keep giving me things to do. And you can't fight with that, because I tried. You can't fight with the consequence of... I'm a better person, my inner world and outer world, are way better without that thing that he showed me for all the time. And in, when I realized that, I think that's when he became my, my teacher, meaning falling into my heart as unshakable, regardless of what I used to think of him or what other people say or think about him. It, it doesn't matter. That experience that I had, having met a person who reflected or ignited something in me, allowed something in me to flower, that's a teacher. And in Buddhist philosophy, if you find anything close to that in this life, stick to them like glue. In this, and, and not because there's something special in them, but because of what is happening inside of you as you meet them. And you will obviously go through trials and tribulations like any hero journey would have to, yeah? except that these trials and tribulations, if your conception of the teacher is what I just described, something extraordinary, not mundane, not normal, like, oh, they taught me accounting, or, you know, uh, if it can be that heightened um, unraveling of um, suffering and a path to bliss, then that's the path to enlightenment. Now, how does it start after you get after you get studying Buddhist philosophy, you realize having met a being like that, that is like a precious gem in your world, couldn't have happened from nowhere. You realize that they're a complete reflection of both the extraordinary in you and all the challenges that you still face having to work through stuff, that it's all the reflection. So I'm sure you've felt that, <laughs> I mean, having met teachers and so on. So that's one. That's If it wasn't for that thread, golden diamond thread of that teacher in my life, I would not have any other teachers. I wouldn't have submitted my mind to the possibility that I could grow 
were it not for him. So then, thanks to him, then I began to adapt that approach and look at other beings in my world who were teachers and I hadn't seen them that way. Mm-hmm. My way of seeing them. And then I got, you know, official teachers that could teach me specific things around Eastern philosophy. And then that was more of a mentor. But then applying this um, relationship with a teacher, it really is one of the core foundations of transforming your world. Because if they're a reflection of you, then absolutely everyone you walked past on the street today has the potential to ignite that in you if you know how to trigger it, how to turn it on. I don't know if that's what you wanted to hear, but... uh, Beautiful. Beautiful. So you mentioned um, meditation and other practices, and you are bringing a masterclass to Mind Oasis. Thank you. Um, I think on the 19th, which I believe is a Sunday morning, Mm -hmm. and um, you can find out more about that at mindoasis.org. And we're calling it a masterclass on analytical meditation. So I'd love first for you, Hector, to talk just a little bit about meditation and what it's done for you personally in your own life. And then can you just help us to understand a little bit about what analytical meditation really is. I think there is misunderstanding um, because there's so many different ways of, of meditating. And so, yeah, please. So as soon as you say the word meditation, everyone gets some idea of what it's supposed to be. If I'm not doing that, I'm not, (laughs) you know, and it just becomes a, a space where people get to continue judging themselves, hating on themselves. And it really is trying to reach a space of pristine awareness about everything that's going on. Yeah. In your, in your awareness, in your mind, in your consciousness. And there are tools. Meditation is a tool to harness the power of attention. Right? So we can get nice and focused on something. And until you have that, you're not really meditating. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that your efforts will go unanswered. You can try, sit on the cushion and try. But the main goal, the beginning goal of meditation is, can you tame this mind from jumping left, right and center, seemingly out of control, which is what you'll realize when you first sit down to meditate. You realize there's very little control I have about what my mind does next. Can I just bring my attention to stay on one point, one thing, one awareness? Whether it's an awareness of something external or internal, that's a whole other story. They're all objects of meditation. After a while of trying, you will you will have that. You could do that in just a few months. You can have focused attention. Eventually, that's called shamatha. Yeah, but it really is focused attention, like a cat has on a pigeon. When they see it, everything else drops away, and you're on the pigeon. You know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Can you do that on purpose? Can you do that deliberately? And, and that that's the beginning of practice of meditation. What got me there was the realization in my first meditation class at Three Jewels in the 90s that when I tried to do that, I couldn't. Like when I tried to say, okay, of course I can meditate on the breath. Would, <laughs> that's the attitude. <laughs> yeah. Within seconds, I just, I'm thinking about tomorrow or yesterday, yeah. I'm doing it wrong. And that's not meditating on the breath. The attention went somewhere else. And I, I think I said it at the beginning, I'm pretty stubborn. And so I couldn't believe that I had zero pliancy of my own mind. Like my, the mind that was mine 
which sounds stupid now. The mind that was mine that I owned wasn't doing what I wanted to do. It shocked me. It shocked me into going, screw this, I'm I'm gonna do it. <laughs> it was such a blessing to be stubborn at that point. Because it made me try again and try again and try again. And I didn't get discouraged because I was going to win. It's my mind. It belongs <laughs> to me. <laughs> it's so silly. <laughs> but what a blessing, right? Too. So I stayed on until and it was months before I could extend a meditation, awareness on something that I chose for a few minutes, for a few minutes. But, but now, by that time, I figured out the process. You get overactive and overthinking or you get sleepy. And it's this in-between stage. Now, on that, on shamatha, that if you have that tool, that single-pointed concentration, you can then apply it to all sorts of different things. It's like a telescope or, you know, oh, look at this star or that star. And what you look at gives you a different feeling, gives you a different impression. Yeah, looking at a black hole, looking at the brightness of the sun, very different feelings. Looking at a negative state of mind, looking at a positive state of mind, give you very different inner experiences, subtle experiences. And so the analytical side of meditation comes to investigate and understand the assumptions we bring to the world, mostly, until we reach an insight, vipassana, or a wisdom that actually understands the relationship between subject and object, right? My subject state of mind what is this thing observing this reality? And what are my assumptions ar around it? And that can liberate you because we're carrying around misconceptions about what causes our experience of suffering or happiness or truth or freedom and all the things that we're forever reactive towards. Analytical meditation will let us get certain about a specific assumption that might be harming us. I'll give you an example. The first time I successfully, and I'll talk about this in the masterclass, the first time I successfully learned an analytical meditation, um, I debated in my mind whether my experience of anger from a triggering reality experience with someone was really them being terrible people is that why I felt anger or is it other place that anger came from? And so you learn a little bit about the philosophy of where the possible causes for an experience can be. And then you apply that learning to your meditation. You go, okay, let's take the position that that person is the source of my anger. Every time he's around, I'm angry. Therefore, they're at fault and I should get away from them and all this other stuff, right? or I should attack or whatever we, our strategy is. But before the strategy, we have to understand, is that really the source of anger? For me, that was my first serious analytical meditation. And then you come up with a question mark in your mind, is that true? And you try and prove that it is true, that they are the source of the problem. Meaning everybody that touches them has the same problem. Because if they're the source of the problem, then they're radiating that shittiness that makes you angry. And when you can't find full evidence for that to be true, you're in trouble. That part of your mind is in trouble. You have to come up with, well, what could it be? <laughs> what about him in just this situation, etc.? right? So you keep questioning, but you can see already that the gap between what you were sure before is beginning to open 
and you could be falling down that. I don't really know where my anger comes from. It seems to be. Now you're less certain. Ah. You know? And in that <laughs> less certain, there's a shift and there's a space. And if you're earnest, if you're true to yourself, you will want to find out exactly where it is so you could stop it, either for yourself or for those around you. So when I did that and I got to read some Eastern philosophy books and so on and all the other possibilities where anger could be. Um, then I got to see that, oh, it's, it's an energetic response that then turns into a mental and verbal response. I don't have to act on that. And when I tried that, it, I didn't always get angry. Oh my goodness, all of a sudden I had a, a power that I didn't know existed when I believed the anger came from outside of me. So basically, you're playing chess with yourself, going, prove you to yourself that that is the place where anger comes from. And then prove to yourself that that's not where it comes from. And then prove to yourself. And in that ping-ponging, it is a little discombobulated. You feel a little loose and lost. But it's your lab. Your meditation is your container to experiment with understanding. And through that process something will ignite, you'll get an aha moment, that moment of awakening, that a knowing that you didn't know before. And if you have the prior type of meditation that I talked about, where you're able to maintain focus on something, when you get that awakening moment, you just put on your single pointed concentration on that and watch the implications of that sort of dissolve the misunderstanding in your neuro connection, mm. your brain. It, it begins to, it's like a domino effect. It's like, if that's not true, then your brain has to work. It will do it naturally to dissolve all the misunderstanding. And you will have a moment of aha awakening, of insight, in, in, you know, in Sanskrit, vipassana. Yeah, and so you need this both. You need analytical meditation to bring you to an aha. And then you need the single pointed concentration to stay on that aha so clearly that it dissolves the misunderstanding. When you get off the cushion, oh my God, people can try and scream at you and you're like, I know the source of anger. In <laughs> fact, I'm not going to do it. And you can see the impulse and I'm like, I'm not playing. And it's not despite anyone. It's just for truth. That's so beautiful. And I was just sitting here thinking um, how this could be applied also to feelings of depression and feelings of sadness. A lot of people are suffering right now. So I'm watching the time here. Hector La, I want to ask you one more question. I always ask yeah. my guests, what is your truth? <laughs> oh. My truth now, which has changed over time, is that there is no truth in the way we think truth exists that I misunderstand truth and that's my truth. Sorry to be Buddhisty about it. <laughs> How lovely that you were Buddhisty about it. So I don't usually share my truth, but my truth in this moment is that my heart is full and happy and it's because of you and your wisdom that you just shared with our listeners. So Hector Marcel on the 19th of December, mindoasis.org. He is the president of Three Jewels. Please check them out, threejewels.org. But this particular class is on Mind Oasis. We're very excited. Masterclass analytical meditation, liberate the anger, liberate the sadness. Oh my God, just liberate.
great. It's amazing. Hector, thank you so much for being my guest today. My pleasure. Blessings. Thanks for having me on. And meditate, everyone. Just try three seconds a day. It'll help. Totally. Thanks, Hector.